You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 17th of November 2022 on Monocle 24. The UK's Chancellor of the Exchequer issues a fiscal statement aimed at cleaning up the previous fiscal statement by the previous Chancellor. China's subtle, stealthy stepping away from Russia accelerates, and does it really matter what language a French tourism poster is in? I'm Andrew Muller. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. My guests Marie Leconte and John Everard will discuss all the day's big stories and we'll have Henry Rees Sheridan's latest letter from New York City. Stay tuned, all that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Andrew Muller, and I'm joined today by the political journalist and author Marie Leconte, and by John Everard, former British ambassador to Belarus, Uruguay, and North Korea. Uh, Marie and John, welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you. Uh, Marie, I think we're still in the window whereby we are allowed to allow you to use the light introductory banter window at the top of the show to shamelessly cane your latest publication. God, thank you. I mean, it's been so long, even I'm bored of it, but fine. <laughs> My latest book, Escape Her Generation, Shape, Destroyed and Survived the Internet, is out in all good bookshops and has been reviewed, um, you know, well by most people. So uh, in, 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 including, I can say, by myself in the latest <laughs> edition of New Humanist magazine. Um, John, would you like to contribute to this shameless media elite log rolling by reminding everybody, as we come towards Christmas, that you do have a title, I think, still available for purchase. Still available. Only Beautiful, please. The definitive book on North Korea, uh, which has been available for so some yourself. time now. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I have also read that. I did not have a chance to review it for anybody. But listeners, I can recommend both of those books. If you have any relatives, for example, who are morbidly interested in both North Korea and online culture, and, you know, there's there's some overlap there. Anyway, there's a couple of recommendations. Um, We will start tonight's show proper in the Netherlands, where a court has returned verdicts in a case brought against three Russian citizens and one Ukrainian over the 2014 shooting down of Malaysia Airlines flight MH17 by Russian-backed militias waging Russia's first incursion into Ukraine. 298 people were killed, 196 of them Dutch nationals. The Boeing 777 had departed Amsterdam, bound for Kuala Lumpur. Well, I'm joined with the latest by Danny Kemp, AFP Bureau Chief in The Hague. Um, Danny, first of all, to the verdict, what has the court decided? Um, the court decided today that uh, three of the uh, suspects who are on trial uh, were indeed uh, guilty. Uh, they were found guilty of the murder of uh, all 298 people on board flight MH17 uh, and also uh, guilty of the uh, intentional shooting down uh, of uh, of the aircraft using a uh, using a missile supplied by by Russia. They did, however, um, acquit uh, one of the suspects, a uh, Russian who was a sort of more subordinate uh, uh, member of the the separatist uh, forces that were fighting in um, eastern Ukraine at the time. Um, they were all uh, the three people who were found guilty were also all uh, sentenced to 
life imprisonment. Uh, however, um, they will probably never serve those sentences because uh, all of them uh, remain at large and have never um, turned up for any of the trial. Uh, Russia refused to extradite them as well. Uh, Danny, you quite rightly point out that there is almost, as things stand, zero chance of any of these three men serving any time whatsoever over this. But does this verdict nevertheless potentially open up any other legal avenues for the families of the victims? Um, well, in, I mean, in one for, for one thing, the, the court also awarded them uh, compensation. But there, you know, there are a number of other um, legal cases that are um, un- underway. Um, there's one in a uh, European rights court um, against Russia on um, on MH17, which is obviously going to be able to um, take into account the Dutch uh, the Dutch court's ruling. A lot of it, though, is more symbolic. You know, I mean, we've spoken to some of the the, the relatives uh, relatives of the of the victims of, of MH17, um, and for them, you know, they were just very keen to see to see justice done. Um, they said that while, you know, you could never really talk of closure for such a thing as this if you've lost relatives, if you've lost children, um, you can at least. Um, you know, feel some sort of yes, yeah, some some sense that justice is done, and that uh, you know that, uh, that that people have been brought brought to account to this, and you know, and to some extent, that Russia has been brought to account to this. I mean, how consuming a story has this been in the Netherlands over the last eight years? Because it is well, one of the subplots of it is the 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 murder in one fell swoop of 196 Dutch citizens. Well, exactly. You know, I mean, it's, it has been compared to, to the, the Netherlands 9-11 in a way. You know, I mean, this is a pretty small country, uh, 17 million people. But more than that, it has a, a small country mentality. Everyone is, you know, it's very, a very neighborly country. Um, and, you know, when, when MH17 was shot down, I mean, the country was really, really plunged into mourning, absolutely horrified, absolutely, absolutely shocked. A lot of, you know, everyone seemed to know someone or the family who'd been affected um, so this was this was a real kind of scar on the whole country, uh, one that has you know turned um, the Dutch views against Russia uh, over the last few years. You know we've seen another a number of other spy scandals involving Russians uh, in the Netherlands in recent years. So relations are pretty um, are pretty fraught because of that because because of all that. So. Yeah, I mean, it's it, it was a it was a huge um, a huge national scar on the kind of national psyche, and today's verdict has been very keenly awaited, very keenly watched, uh, and has been uh, been welcomed here. The verdict is, of course, delivered uh, at a time when pretty much all of Europe's uh, relations with Russia are fraught for the obvious reasons. That being the case, has there been any official reaction from the Dutch government to these verdicts? Yeah, I mean the the Dutch Prime Minister Mark Rutte said it's a you know an important step for justice. Um, his statement was actually uh, rather um, uh, rather low key. I think you know they, they they he maybe suspected there'd be some kind of appeal by the sus by the uh, by the suspects. Although we're not sure that's going to be going to be the case. But you know I think he wanted to stay away from any kind of triumphalism. Um, and was more focused on the fact that you know he hopes this can bring some kind of peace, if not, you know, if, if not closure to, uh, to to the families of the victims. Um, but we've also seen the Dutch uh, the Dutch royal family even reacting to, to this, which again is a measure of how you know how how deeply this this uh, this cut uh, cut into the Dutch national psyche. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, cer- certainly the yeah the Dutch the Dutch political reaction has been, uh, if anything, a little muted at the moment. We've actually seen. 
uh, you know, stronger reactions from Ukraine saying it's an, you know, an important step, uh, NATO saying similar, and also from the US. Danny Kemp with AFP in The Hague. Thank you for joining us. Well, we will bring uh, John and Murray back in now and move along to domestic political concerns here in the UK, where a major fiscal statement by the Chancellor of the Exchequer has not tanked the pound, created the markets and doomed the Prime Minister. And so for those reasons alone must be reckoned an improvement on the previous such set piece. Jeremy Hunt announced measures including a bit of a whack at highest earners, an increased windfall tax on energy firms and a decentish hike in the minimum wage and pensions and benefits. But before anyone started wondering if Hunt had forgotten which party he was in, he also foreshadowed cuts including those in support for soaring energy bills. Um, John, first of all, a, a general impression? Conservative uh, with a small c, uh, clearly competent. He's run the numbers, he's done his sums, and the markets have reacted calmly. Uh, he also, of course, took the precaution of leaking most of what he was going to do in <laughs> advance. We knew that he was going to uh, introduce uh, a further freeze on the tax threshold, so, so an increase in income tax without it actually being a nominal increase, uh, politically clever. Uh, and the fact that uh, the... Uh, uh, the, the fact that he has increased uh, the uh, the tax uh, the, the 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 amount of tax that the, the rich will will pay uh, will probably go down quite well uh, across the political spectrum. So all in all, a workmanlike job, quite quite different from uh, his predecessor. <laughs> and fascinating, of course, that in 55 days the Tory party has done this extraordinary 180 degree turn uh, from Kwasi Kwarteng's uh, great handout budget to this much more steer one is it really only 55 days only 55 days good lord um murray did jeremy hunt today sound to you like somebody still crazed with a certain optimism that the conservative party can actually win the next election I mean, not really. You know, at the end of the day, uh, the Conservative Party is still polling at around 25% and the Labour Party is still polling at around 50%. So it is fair to say there's not been any great sort of honeymoon for Rishi Sunak so far. But also, I think, you know, the OBR, uh, was it the OBR? I can't remember, but, you know, the, the IFS, I think, my, my bad, you know, pointed out that this year will be the biggest fall in uh, living standards since the records began in 1948. And the second worst year since records began will be next year. So households will really, really be feeling the pinch this year next year probably the year after so again electorally speaking i don't you know i i don't believe that budget was in in any way a sort of meaningful way out uh, for the conservatives uh, john he has punted some of the details of taxes down the track a bit um is that because he doesn't know what he's going to cut entirely yet or is he just trying to make life a bit difficult for the opposition here I think there may be elements of both. I mean, the political attractions of bringing in tax rises after the 2024 election are obvious. Uh, but also, I, I think he's, he's trying to signal that this is a long-term strategy. It's not just a quick fix-it budget, uh, that Britain is going to remain austere and very careful for many years to come. Uh, Murray, is it, though, a difficult budget for Labour to respond to? Because the previous one, and we should, it's not really technical, I mean, it's effectively a budget it's not technically a budget but we'll call it a budget because the last one of course was actually quite easy for labor uh, to respond to they just had to affect incredulous expressions and say things like have you people completely lost your mind <laughs> 
Uh, well, yes, no, I, I think they can't quite do that anymore. And I think the usual uh, Labour attack lines have been spiked preemptively by Jeremy Hunt because actually there will be some decent spending in education, some <laughs> decent spending on the NHS care budget as well. So I think, you know, one quite obvious attack line would be that actually the reforms of the social care system are still being sort of, you know, thrown further down the line, probably in two years, I think he said, so, you know, which is obviously quite a big, uh, big topic. But but, but again, I think, you know, cost of living crisis, uh, the bills, I think, you know, people's bills are going to rise massively. The government is still going to help, but it is going to help less weirdly than it was going to um, under Listra. So there are still things to say. And, and, and again, and I think the obvious line as well can be, listen, okay, fine, this had to be the hard decisions budget who made the really bad decisions that caused you know those hard decisions we made and again you know you've been in power for 12 years as a party how have you still not fixed anything so so again it's you know i think again some of the attack lines are no longer up for grabs but overall i would not worry too much if i were the labor party I mean, the, one of the many things, uh, John, that the Tories will be running against the next time there is a general election, it's not just the decline in living standards that Mari was discussing. It is the very fact that whether you think they have done well or not, they have been in power for a very long time now, much longer than British voters are usually patient with one party at the top. Well, indeed so. And as, as, as Mary said a minute ago, the polls suggest that British voters are about to do uh, what British voters so love to do, uh, give them a whacking great spanking. <laughs> uh, unless the polls are wildly, wildly wrong, uh, it will be uh, 13 years by the time they go, which is, is indeed a long time, but that's your lot. And uh, I, I suspect we'll see a change of government. Um, there was an elephant, or as there always is, in the room that, that languished unaddressed, Mari, and you, you alluded uh, yourself to the Office of Budget Responsibility uh, and what it's estimated about living standards. But the Office of Budget Responsibility has also said today that Brexit will result in a long-term decline of 15% uh, in the UK's trade density, uh, trade intensity rather. Is there the remotest chance, do you think, of anybody in the Conservative Party acknowledging that? dealing with it you've already started laughing uh, yes i have yes i have no, no, I, I, I believe that to be quite unlikely although so i think what will be quite interesting politically is that so i think some polling came out earlier this week showing that you know the, the margins now for people saying you know if the vote were to be held tomorrow which way would you vote mm. and actually remain would win by such a massive margin and actually so many leave voters from 2016 have now changed their minds so i think that, that, that there or is an died. interesting thing yeah but <laughs> exactly what well, one of the two maybe both. both who knows yeah um but but you know I, I do think the political reality on this is kind of changing. But then if you're, if you're the Conservative Party, though, I think most of your voters probably remain leave voters, which is the mm. slightly tricky thing there for them as a party. Like they do have quite an unwieldy electoral coalition anyway. But I think, crucially, leave voters are still their main people. But the Labour Party may be interesting on that once, you know, if, if they do get into government, because, you know, if, if they do win they can probably start saying, actually, you know, fine, we're definitely not going to rejoin, but can we maybe address this and actually try to fix it in some way? I mean, John, can or should this become more of a thing, especially if the forecasts about living standards and the British economy in general are proven correct? Uh, what? Should Brexit the, become more of a thing? Well, the, the idea of, of reversing it to some extent. I mean, I know Sir Keir Starmer, the leader of the opposition, has already said that he thinks rejoining is, is something of a, a dead letter. But there are, there are options of, 
involving not quite rejoining. Yes, there are. There's quite a wide kind of penumbra between being completely out and completely in. Um, association agreements, uh, bilateral agreements of various kinds, uh, special arrangements. I mean, diplomacy has got all kinds of tools uh, to, to fudge issues. It's what we do for a living, after all. <laughs> uh, and if the mood in the UK changes, uh, there, there are plenty of ways of getting a lot closer to Europe without actually rejoining. Well, let's move along to diplomacy, because back in February, Russian President Vladimir Putin visited China for the opening of the 2022 Winter Olympics. Shortly afterwards, for obvious reasons, a conventional wisdom coalesced that the real reason for the outing had been to secure President Xi Jinping's support, or at least acquiescence, for Putin's proposed lightning conquest of Ukraine. Nine months later, the recent G20 summit in Bali offered some suggestion that China's patience with Russia's vainglorious imperial endeavour is ebbing. More on that shortly, but President Xi also featured at the G20 in another piece of impromptu political theatre, this one involving Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, as our Toronto correspondent Thomas Lewis here with contextualizers. Well, I think it's worth explaining just uh, briefly exactly what President Xi of China is referring to when he alleges that Prime Minister Trudeau leaked contents of their conversations to the press. Now, on Tuesday, the 15th of November, the two leaders had a conversation, the contents of which was summarised and rounded up and published by the Prime Minister's office in what's called a readout. Now, these documents are pretty standard Prime Minister ministerial pieces of protocol. Whenever Prime Minister Trudeau has a conversation on the phone or in person with a world leader, then the contents of that conversation is published by the Prime Minister's office. Now, in this readout that was published following the conversation on the 15th of November, it was revealed that Trudeau had brought up a report by Canada's intelligence service that uh, members of the Communist Party of China had been secretly funding 11 parliamentary candidates for Canada's general election in 2019. Uh, There was also a suggestion that large sums of money had been funneled through the Chinese consulate in Toronto to fund those candidates. Uh, But also there was a push by people linked to China's Communist Party to get uh, figures linked to them uh, with their agenda, I suppose, uh, into other jobs in the parliamentary system in Canada, which is a story, of course, that's raised a lot of concern in Canada and has been described potentially uh, as an act of meddling by the Chinese government in Canadian democracy. We, of course, had the case of the house arrest of Meng Wanzhou. She was the Huawei executive. Uh, While she was under house arrest in relative luxury in Vancouver, two Canadian men who've been known as the the two Michaels were being held in uh, very different conditions in Chinese prisons. Uh, All of those figures have been released. But I think, you know, it does show that there's a lingering tension between the two governments. And it's just interesting, I think, that... uh, President Xi decided to raise this in such an unscripted way while the cameras were rolling with Prime Minister Trudeau. He himself explained at a press conference after the incident uh, that he felt it was his duty to let Canadians know exactly what he was talking to other world leaders about. But I think it does fit into a pattern of relative strain between the two countries uh, that obviously is still simmering pretty publicly in some ways, I'd say. And uh, Justin Trudeau, of course, his defence is that he is standing up for Canadians by speaking about those things with the leaders apparently involved.
Thomas Lewis, thank you. Let's bring John and Murray back in. Uh, Murray, first of all, as a professional observer of this sort of thing, how much did you enjoy the Justin Trudeau Xi Jinping spat? I really enjoyed it. It, it was just <laughs> unbelievably passive aggressive. It really felt like basically watching so you know two teenage girls fighting over some boy in class or something. The, the, the tone was just absolutely remarkable. But but also again, you know, I think it it was quite extraordinary because you, you do not expect Xi Jinping to be talking like this, especially in front of a camera at all. Well, that was the thing about it, John. It was in front of a camera. Am I right in assuming that at diplomatic enclaves, and you are a veteran of many, this sort of thing is actually not that unusual? No, not that unusual at all. Uh, she is not stupid, and he knew that camera was there. He did this deliberately. This was a public rebuke <coughs> to Trudeau. It was actually, I thought, very well delivered. She <laughs> kept his cool right through. He, the point he was stressing was not that, uh, that Canada and, and, and China disagreed on things. Everybody understands that. It was that Trudeau had released into the public domain material that the Chinese thought should have been kept confidential. And he... he she was actually quite gentle. He just said, we need to, to build the conditions for a, a proper dialogue to overcome the tensions that Marie was just talking about, indicating clearly that he didn't think that Trudeau's release had done much towards that. I thought he actually handled it quite well. I mean, it, it's a thing that it, it does always interest me, the degree to which whether or not two people happen to get on uh, can affect you know, the policy towards the lives of millions. Um, and I think there is an assumption, especially in democracies, Mari, that such disputes as we see have a certain amount of theatre to them. But again, at all the conferences and so forth that you have visited, how often have you witnessed two people actually having a proper row? Uh, well, I mean, it sort of depends, because I think I, I have mostly gone to, you know, stuff related to British politics and obviously uh, if there's one thing British politicians or indeed the British in general enjoy it's a drink so I think that you know, in, in that context you know, if, you know I've been to a number of uh, conferences of the Labour Party the Conservative Party the Liberal Democrats even um, and I've definitely seen some quite heavy handed bickering because people were quite drunk but the conferences I've been to in Brussels for example people are usually very civil because they, you know, because they feel that they must or at least you know in, in the places where I comma a journalist comma could see them it, it, it was you know if not quite always all smiles, it was you know close enough to that. Well, John, you've been at these things as as not a journalist, and you don't you don't necessarily have to name names, though if you'd like to go right ahead. But ha have you been personally witness to, involved in, found yourself holding coats aside or having to stand in the middle of any especially memorable rows? Yes, all those things. <laughs> and could I just say what a pain journalists are at these conferences? When journalists are out, you have to behave yourself. That's They're no why fun at all. Yes. Well, yes, exactly. <laughs> so to, to, to make us to much behave like civilized human beings. I mean, this is why we shut doors and have closed doors consultations. So we can bang tables, scream hysterically at each other, and behave, I love the analogy, like spoiled teenagers fighting <laughs> over a boy. <laughs> I mean, this kind of thing goes on all the time. People get hot under the collar, people get emotionally. But not in front of journalists, not in front of cameras. Can, can you tell us about a particular incident? You don't have to name the names, but again, we'd both be very happy if you did. I have spent a lot of time working in Latin America, and I don't think I'm revealing too many secrets when I say that the moment you close the door uh, between uh, where, where you've got two Latin American teams arguing over something, 
they go ballistic almost instantly. <laughs> I, I mean, voluble Spanish, sort of insults hurled across the table and, until finally they all get off their chest, take a big, sort of big, deep breath and go and have a glass of wine together. <laughs> um, we, we should uh, reluctantly talk about the more serious stuff from the G20 in particular, John. And I, I did just want to ask you, as you know, somebody who has worked in China as a diplomat, um, what you gleaned about China's present attitude to what Russia is doing in Ukraine? I think this is the big takeaway from the G20. Uh, the declaration uh, of the G20 caught all China observers completely by surprise. <coughs> China let through language, uh, quoting the United Nations, certainly, but language roundly condemning Russia's attack on Ukraine. Now, Russia, of course, was represented only by a foreign minister. It didn't actually have the firepower to prevent that declaration mm. going out as it was. China did and didn't use that firepower. Moreover, if you wade through the two transcripts, or such as they are, of uh, uh, President Xi's meeting with President Biden, lots of nuggets. The, the President Xi telling the Americans in public, we are not trying to challenge you, we are not trying to replace you. Uh, common ground on not just the wrongness of the use of nuclear weapons, but the threat of nuclear weapons in Ukraine. That was a slap across the face to Putin. The Chinese are signalling to the world that they are realigning. That that Putin, like Bashir, uh, like Gaddafi, like all China's, quote, friends, unquote, is slowly being thrown under a bus. Can you throw somebody under a bus slowly? Anyway, uh, <laughs> you, you, you could carry them. Carry uh, them gently, yes, in yeah. buswoods. Uh, and... That China is entirely unsentimental about its foreign relations. China uh, will always pursue its own interests, and if any given country no longer fits with those interests, that's just tough. You just get cast aside. And it looks very much as if that is what's happening to Russia right now. Well, let's move along and look at France. And it is not news that France is singularly suspicious of the encroachment of foreign languages. For more than two centuries, the pious centuries of the Academy Francaise swore Modelled in splendid embroidered robes, have metaphorically swished their actual ceremonial swords to repel such putative, unruly linguistic borders as these are genuine examples, deadline, hashtag, and has been. The Académie Française are not involved yet in the most recent apparent brouhaha of this variety, but according to Le Figaro, another cultural organisation is harumphing about tourist advertisements which drift into English. Um, Mari, here representing the entire French nation. Is, is there anything actually wrong with a big poster saying, I love Nice? Obviously not. And then obviously not. And I think the weird thing as well is that this feels quite new because I remember being a teenager in France and we would make fun of Quebec because we, we would basically use English words, um, you know, among French words and French sentences uh, like normal people. And we would just say, so for example, shopping, you know, we, we say le shopping. Uh, in France, uh, but in Quebec they will say le magasinage, and and I remember very specifically making fun of that in class, you know, as a as a teenager. So so again, I think France deciding to wake up one day and saying actually no, we want to sound very silly as well, just feels completely gobsmacking. I mean. Even if this isn't officially a big whoop among most French people, it is still officially a big whoop in France. That's what the Académie Française is there for. Have you ever figured out why that is? I mean, it's not like French is a threatened language. 300 million people speak it. Uh, I... I, I am quite baffled by it, if I'm honest. And it, it reminds me of that brilliant story of when, uh, so really, really not long after the Brexit vote, 
um, I believe the French delegation, or at least a portion of the French delegation in Brussels, their first, their nearly first reaction is to go well. Our personal takeaway from Brexit is that <laughs> French is now the EU's language. Is that lads? It's been like two days. Come on, <laughs> um, John. It, it, it strikes me as strange, and I'm, I'm aware that I sit at this table as uh, somebody who was raised on an English-speaking island, and I'm aware that between the two of you, you could probably converse with about three-quarters of the world's people. But one of the arguments advanced against this pernicious tourist advertisement saying, I love Nice, is that allowing, well, banning this sort of thing, as this organisation puts it, will slow the progress towards bilingualism. But isn't bilingualism good? Well, yes, I would have thought so. <laughs> uh, provided the bilingualism has French on top, I think they would argue. I cannot resist at this point pointing out that although uh, the Académie Française and the various cultural organisations in France are all in favour of protecting the French language, its dignity, its culture, its beauty against these filthy tomato <laughs> sauce using Anglo-Saxons, it doesn't work the other way round. If you have the misfortune to live in France but have a first language like Basque or Provençal, Heaven help you. There's no official recognition whatever, no official bilingual street signs. To be educated in your native language, you have to have a private education. Uh, and I, But they managed to, to get through life without having to, to, to declare outrage against the, 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 the French authorities. What a pity that the French themselves don't do this. Oh, yeah, no, no, and I think that happens again, that that is just weird imperialism about the French language, even within France. I know, so my, my great-granddad, actually, uh, was born and bred in Brittany and actually spoke Breton as his first language. I learned that recently until he was about six or seven and then went to school and they forced him to learn French and speak French and that was it. So, again, I, I think other languages were very much crushed, even though they are languages from the country of France. But th yes. what I'm curious about as an embarrassed in this company monoglot... Um, is given both of yours experiences and i'll ask you first john because we did do the thing in the waiting room beforehand of trying to figure out how many languages the two of you speak between you and it is an impressive quantity don't all languages do this don't they all borrow from other languages and incorporate idioms and phrases into their own language or is is, is it just english that because english obviously has a genius for it but does do all the languages you speak do this in some level yes but virtually all of them. I mean, in some of them, not just in French, there's a movement to, to purify the language, but it very rarely gets anywhere. Um, there is, I mean, famously in, in North Korea, and the North Koreans, of course, are deep into language purification, being the purest of races. And they have developed a word for ice cream, uh, which is about five syllables long, which I can't now, now reproduce. I don't know a single North Korean who doesn't call the white cold stuff just ice cream. <laughs> uh, it's so much easier. Um, I remember once, uh, picking up on, on what we were saying, uh, at the hoverport, when there was a hovercraft between the UK and France, very proudly going up to, my, uh, to, to the French guard and asking when the air glisseur went, using the correct note, Académie Française word for hovercraft. And he looked at me, so I was completely stupid, and said, you're talking about lovercraft, I suppose. <laughs> I gave up. Uh, <laughs> I am reminded at this point that many years ago, an Australian newspaper, I think think 
stealing the idea from the New Statesman, ran a competition for travel advice to give to people who were going overseas for the first time. Uh, and the, 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 I mean, there were a few things like, for example, when entering a London underground carriage, it's customary to shake hands with every other passenger. Uh, but but the, 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 the winning entry was, Murray, that when in France, uh, never attempt to address the locals in French. They really enjoy practising their English, especially with Australians. Uh, and, if you, and, and if you address a Parisian in English, and they pretend not to hear you, that is a quaint local custom, and the correct response is to grasp them firmly by the shoulder and say, hey mate, are you deaf or something? Uh, but, but, but genuinely, just, just as a closing thought on this, you, you were saying earlier that you, know, you don't take this terribly seriously and that you weren't aware of people of you know, your generation when you were growing up taking it terribly seriously. Do you think establishment France will ever get past this? Yes, but also I think, you know, does establishment France really matter that much? I'm sure that, for example, my grandmother, who is They've someone who... they swords. Sorry? They get swords. They do get swords. Yeah, my grandmother, who, you know, is a massive... Like, has probably read every book written by an Académie Française author and takes that stuff very seriously, probably does not care at all, you know, so that she's kind of like the woman I follow on this stuff. So, you know, if she doesn't care, <laughs> then I really, really doubt that anyone does. Marie Leconte and John Everard, thank you both for joining us. Finally, on today's show, it's time for our regular letter from New York City. Here is our correspondent, Henry Rhys Sheridan. Last week, I went bonkers in Yonkers. Not really. I was only in Yonkers, a city just north of New York City, for about half an hour. I was there to report a story for Monocle magazine. And my conduct while I was there was quite sensible. But during my brief visit, I was on the receiving end of a comment that I do think was bonkers. The episode doesn't fit into the story I was up there to report, so I want to tell you about it here instead. After I exited Yonkers train station, I searched on Google Maps for somewhere I could buy a cappuccino. I settled on a nearby cafe that has a large number of positive reviews. I walked to the cafe and placed my order. The barista, a young woman, asked me if I was British, and I admitted that I was. The very next words she said to me were, You remind me of Harry Styles. I didn't know what to say. I asked the barista where she was from, mainly because I couldn't think of anything else. She said Mexico. I nodded and smiled, then left the cafe. I walked through the streets of Yonkers in a daze, thinking about the barista's comment. Why did I remind her of Harry Styles? As far as I know, Harry Styles and I have very little in common. But then I don't know very much about Mr. Styles. Here's a sum total of my Styles knowledge. He's a singer. He got his start as a teenager in a band called One Direction. And since leaving his first job, he's pursued an extraordinarily successful solo career. None of those statements can be accurately applied to me. And I certainly don't look like Harry Styles. Styles is known for his boyish charm, incorporating a thick head of artfully tousled blonde hair. I look like every character from Wallace and Gromit at the same time. My partner shaves my head every couple of weeks to conceal my rapidly thinning dome. 
In fact, there are only two things I know for certain I have in common with Harry Styles. First, we both originate in the United Kingdom. Second, we're both in relationships with older women. And unless she knows much, much more about me than she revealed, the barista was only party to one of those pieces of information. Was my being British really enough to not only remind her of Harry Styles, but to prompt her to report that psychic event to me? I don't like that idea. If I find myself around a person who is audibly British in a social context where the majority of people aren't British, I'm often disinclined to talk and thus reveal myself to also be British. This is because I don't want to take the risk of being grouped in with another British person. I've got nothing against British people, I just strongly dislike the sense of being part of a group. The feeling of a group identity eating away at my individual identity makes me feel a bit sick. So the possibility that merely being British was enough to render me practically indistinguishable from Harry Styles in the eyes of the Yonkers barista didn't feel good at all. However, in the next few days, for the first time in my life, I'm going to consciously make myself visible as a member of a national group. As soon as I've finished writing and recording this letter, I'm heading into Manhattan to pick up my Wales football shirt from the Adidas flagship store. I'm going to wear it while watching Wales at this year's compromised World Cup in Qatar. I'm nervous and excited to publicly out myself as Welsh. As I've said, I normally go out of my way to avoid being identified as part of a group. So why is this different? There's a scarcity value. There are only three million Welsh people, so we are rare simply as organisms. That makes me feel special. Also, we don't get many opportunities to represent ourselves collectively on a global stage. This is the first Football World Cup we've qualified for in 64 years. We're good at rugby, but that can't be considered a truly global sport. There's also an element of trying to ameliorate a personal insecurity. My dad's English, and I grew up in England till I was six. By this stage, only the faintest traces remain of the weak Welsh accent I once had. Putting on the Wales shirt, I'm asserting my national affiliation to myself as much as anyone else. Of course, a football shirt isn't going to solve my ongoing identity crisis. I'm not going to be able to wear it all, or even most, of the time. It would get threadbare and filthy. The inconvenient truth is that none of us can hide forever inside a group identity, or escape them completely. Instead, we've got to work with whatever's to hand in terms of identifiers to assemble and constantly maintain a junk sculpture resembling a person for the duration of our lifetimes. Luckily for most of us, that's not too long. Our New York radio correspondent, Henry Ree Sheridan, with his brass band, who he lives with. That's all for this edition of the Monocle Daily. Thanks to our panellists today, Mari Leconte and John Everard. Today's show was produced by Lillian Fawcett and researched by Emily Sands. Our sound engineer was Adam Heaton. I'm Andrew Muller here in London. The Daily returns at the same time tomorrow. Thanks for listening. <laughs> 